This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today, we launch a brand new series called The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And it's brought to us by our own Alex Cortez. Take it away, Alex. A road trip that didn't involve a car. Get your motor that didn't involve a road. Head out on the highway. It was the greatest adventure ever in American history. And whatever comes but don't take my word for it. Take documentary giant Ken Burns's. They went out on the best road trip in American history. And American historians. Here's Burns's partner, Dayton Duncan. American Heritage did a survey of leading historians. They said, of all the different moments of American history, what's the one that you would personally like to have been with? And surprisingly, the one that more said than any other event wasn't the I want to be there at the signing of the Declaration of Independence or I want to be standing on the hill as Pickett's Charge starts but the one that had more than any other single part of it was to be somewhere on the Lewis and Clark expedition. An expedition that we know of but don't really know. We think of it like this. We tend to think of Lewis and Clark as two guys, a dog and an Indian woman. When it's really like this. What they transverse is the largest museum in the world. 4,000 miles from St. Louis, Missouri to Astoria, Oregon. And back another 4,000 miles to explore a West unknown to an America whose border ended at the Mississippi River and where two-thirds of the citizens lived within 50 miles of the Atlantic Ocean. The most important expedition in American history. There are authentic heroes which we're starved for today. There's something about Lewis and Clark that gets under your skin because they took the cross-country road trip that we've always wanted to take. Because they were the first to touch land that one's nation had never touched before. A dream that most of us carry in our heads to be the first. They were the first. And thanks to the copious journals they took throughout their expedition, we can experience what they experienced as if we were first. Here's Dayton Duncan. I have traveled the Lewis and Clark Trail four times now with Meriwether Lewis because of the written record. I could, I've been to places I've looked, read his journals, and looked up in Montana and the White Cliffs and seen precisely what he saw. So I've gotten to know him. And Will gets to know them too. For the next two and a half years, our The Most Epic Road Trip Ever series will bring you through their two and a half year journey and what they face on that particular day in history. Today, with the launch of their road trip. When the astronauts went up on the race to, to the moon, they already knew what the moon looked like. They knew what to expect. They knew what the, you know, they already knew what the specific gravity might be and that, you know, they, that there wouldn't be any oxygen. When Lewis and Clark took off uh, and started off, they had really no idea, and they had some wilder imaginings. They thought they might meet the fabled uh, descendants of uh, Welsh-speaking, blue-eyed Indians, always rumored to be just over the next western horizon. 
and the president who commissioned them, Thomas Jefferson, also believed that wild beasts roamed with reckless abandon. The same Thomas Jefferson who denied Meriwether Lewis's first request to go on the Western adventure. Here's historian Clay Jenkinson. Lewis applied at the age of 18, and Jefferson regarded him as too young. A decade later, though, he said yes. Yes to sending his virtually adopted son, Meriwether Lewis, on an endeavor that could cost him his life. It is largely unknown that it was meant to be the Lewis expedition, and that William Clark wasn't on anyone's mind, and that what we now know is the Lewis and Clark expedition was Jefferson's fourth attempt at exploring the West and finding the fabled Northwest Passage, a continuous river that connected East to West, a West that might have seemed too big of a bullet to bite off. At the time, Henry Adams expressed that there are grave doubts at the hugeness of the land and whether one government can comprehend the whole. When frontiersmen complained about being attacked by Indians and their government wasn't protecting them, and when it took Jefferson 10 whole days just to get from the original capital of Philadelphia to his home in Virginia. This was a time that you're in about a three-mile-an-hour life you know maybe you could get up to five you could maybe sprint on a horse faster than that for a short distance but if you're traveling anywhere you're basically at the pace of a person walking or horse walking unless you were on a river and it didn't feel like this was going to change anytime soon and so if the present was incomprehensible why make it worse Jefferson understood all those problems. There was no more sensitive and, and shrewd political actor in American life between 1770 and 1830 than Thomas Jefferson. He's the, he's the one supreme political genius, and he rode over all of the controversies and chaos and, and setbacks of his era because of his capacity to read the country and to maintain a high-minded view of the future while still paying attention to the realities right in front of him. And when we come back, more on the most epic road trip ever taken, Lewis and Clark and their adventure. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More on Lewis and Clark after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the most epic road trip ever taken, the Lewis and Clark adventure. And we return to historian Clay Jenkinson, talking about the man who commissioned this adventure. We're talking about Thomas Jefferson. There's really no other figure in American life like Jefferson. I doubt that John Adams would have sent the Lewis and Clark expedition up the Missouri River I certainly doubt that Madison or Monroe would have done it. This is the sort of thing that Jefferson and Jefferson alone uh, had the, the intelligence to do. So he believed absolutely that the future of the American experiment lay in the West, that the original 13 states, however interesting they might be, had been corrupted by colonial software and colonial habits, and that they still, in many respects, looked back across the Atlantic towards Great Britain and towards Europe. And he believed that the, the real American experiment in liberty, what he called an empire for liberty such as the world has never previously seen, was going to play itself out on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. He also knew that if the interior of the continent was a contested ground, Spain, France, Britain, maybe Russia, the United States, that this was going to be a a much more complicated national destiny and one that would be attended by war and struggle and uh, a diplomatic set of, of crises that would make it harder for us to prosper and to pursue happiness. And so he rightly wanted to clear the continent of all of the, con- the other contenders and he rightly wanted to see if the continent could be knitted together by a river system that would extend from Pittsburgh to Astoria. And so he's seeing all these things, but at the same time he understands the real problems before him, that keeping the Mississippi River open is extremely important to the American economy, that uh, dealing with Indians um, in Georgia and in the Carolinas and to a certain extent in Virginia and Pennsylvania was important. Getting the British out of the the trade forts that they continued to hold um, in direct violation of the 1783 Treaty of Paris was important. So Jefferson's capable of thinking in very bold, utopian, long-term ways. At the same time, he he keeps in mind the immediate issues uh, that exist before him. And without this vision of Jefferson's, we could have ended up like everyone else. Our continent could very easily, or just as easily, have ended up like a North American Europe. The United States would be the equivalent of Brazil and South America, the largest geographically of the different nations that occupied North America, but certainly not a nation that went from sea to sea. Jefferson knew the expedition had to be made, and he also knew it couldn't be him. Jefferson was an enormously gifted visionary, but he could not have survived three days on the Lewis and Clark Trail. So who would it be? Meriwether Lewis was born in 1774, the same year of the Boston Tea Party and of the first meeting of the Continental Congress. The American Revolution was underway. A revolution that Lewis's father, William, served in. And like George Washington, he served without pay and went Washington one better. 
bearing his own expenses as his patriotic contribution to his country. And in 1779, when his horse drowned while crossing a river, he managed to swim ashore, but pneumonia set in. And two days later, he was dead. His son, Merriweather, was five years old. I think that it's been underemphasized how disruptive this moment of Lewis's life was. Not only does his father die, but his mother soon remarries. Lewis has to come to terms with a stepfather. So it seems to me that there was a kind of a psychic disruption early in Lewis's life. A disruption that would stay with him the entirety of his life. Jefferson labeled it as hypochondria, which the medical journals of the time described as deep depressiveness. And in spite of this burden, Lewis was quite a precocious young lad. Lewis, from his childhood, was a sort of a wilderness guy and a wanderer. And Jefferson later said he was habituated to the woods from the age of eight. And at that tender age, he would spend days and weeks at a time alone in the woods, at least according to Jefferson. And family legend had it that Merriweather once returned from a hunt at that same age when a vicious bull rushed him. While his companions watched in shock, he calmly raised his gun and killed the bull. Jefferson continued his praise. Traveling through uh, landscapes covered with snow and you could, you could trace his footsteps by the blood from his feet. And I mean, some of this seems a little bit hyperbolic to me, but it's clear that Lewis was a natural lover of wilderness and that he had wilderness skills. And about this same time, Jefferson made his first inquiry about an exploration of the West. First attempt came at the end of the war. Jefferson had a kind of a crush on George Rogers Clark. Uh, George Rogers Clark was a brilliant, handsome young man out in the western part of Virginia in Kentucky, and he helped to win the war for us. And in fact, his heroics along the lower part of the Great Lakes region uh, helped to secure the boundary that extended all the way to the Mississippi after the war ended. So Jefferson had a particular admiration for George Rogers Clark, and he became fascinated by the possibility that there was a second act. And so Jefferson wrote to Clark on December 4th, 1783. I find they have subscribed a very large sum of money in England for exploring the country from the Mississippi to California. They pretend it is only to promote knowledge. I am afraid they have thoughts of colonizing into that quarter. Some of us have been talking here in a feeble way of making the attempt to search that country. How would you like to lead such a party? Your friend and humble servant, Thomas Jefferson. Due to the slowness of mail back then, it took over two months for the letter of the Declaration of Independence's author to be received and a response returned, and George Rogers Clark couldn't do it. Incidentally, Clark was the older brother of William Clark, of the Lewis and Clark, but who was still not in the picture. And then in 1786, while Jefferson was in France as the ambassador there, he encouraged John Ledyard, who had a rather unique plan. The guy that he signed up to do it decided that the way he was going to get there is he was going to do it from west to east. And unfortunately, as he was crossing Siberia, Catherine the Great was in charge of Russia at the time, and she 
suspected something and, and had him arrested. So that, that's what happened with uh, that one. And now the third attempt in 1793. The American Philosophical Society took up a subscription, which is how many of these sorts of adventures were funded. And Jefferson was a part of that and wrote the instructions for a French botanist, an adventure by the name of Andre Michaud. But this fell apart for a number of reasons. One of which was that by the time Michaud had reached Kentucky, they discovered he was a French spy. And this was the same attempt for which Jefferson denied Meriwether Lewis's participation for only being 18. In 1794, however, Lewis would go on an adventure. He volunteered in the militia President George Washington put out a clarion call for to quell the Whiskey Rebellion. A rebellion out on the frontier over Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton's new excise tax on whiskey, which threatened to pull apart a nation that was just created. And then, Lewis got in trouble. Trouble that in divine providence would prove to be worthwhile. He was involved in what's known as an affair of honor with a man named Elliot, and it was in the army, and Lewis, we don't know all the details, but Lewis went to a party at Elliot's quarters, and Lewis was apparently offensive somehow, and Elliot told him to leave, and Lewis regarded that as a profound act of disrespect. So he left for a while, and then he came back and challenged this Elliot to a duel. And things could have ratcheted up into a duel, but it didn't happen. A duel was a common way to settle disputes back in those days, even though its ending could be quite unforgiving. While being the sitting vice president, Aaron Burr dueled Alexander Hamilton and killed him. In the future, President Andrew Jackson also killed a man in a duel. Unfortunately for Lewis, however, the military explicitly forbade duels. Lewis was then court-martialed for this. Uh, Elliot filed charges for off, uh, behavior unbecoming to an officer, and the court-martial was held. Lewis handled his own defense. He was acquitted, but he was in Mad Anthony Wayne's companies, and Wayne didn't like this sort of thing. And when we come back more on the most epic road trip ever. Lewis and Clark, this is Our American Stories. And we return to the most epic road trip ever taken and to how Mary Weather Lewis's commander, Mad Anthony Wayne, handled Lewis's challenging a man to a duel. Wayne believed that a legalistic process wasted time and money. He preferred men to settle their disputes between themselves and however they wish, even if by duel, but he didn't want to hear about it. So Elliot's charges offended him, and thus he looked favorably upon Lewis. And so he had Lewis reassigned with some shame. Lewis has been exonerated legally, but there's some cloud now hanging over his head, and he's reassigned to none other than William Clark and a chosen rifle company. 
So William Clark is just minding his own business, and suddenly this troublemaker is assigned to him from somewhere else with a drinking problem. And so the point is, from the very beginning, Lewis and Clark had a relationship that was not untroubled. They only served together for six months, but it was six months where they clearly made a distinct impression upon one another. And in 1801, Lewis's adoptive father, Thomas Jefferson, becomes President of the United States and asks him to serve his nation in an entirely different manner. He hires Lewis as Jefferson's private correspondence secretary, and Lewis lives with Thomas Jefferson in the White House. After a few months of these two bachelors living in their unparalleled bachelor pad, Jefferson wrote to his daughter that Captain Lewis and myself are like two mice in church. And although Lewis was technically his correspondence secretary, Jefferson wrote all of his letters, so he really wasn't that. He essentially was Jefferson's chief of staff, and a staff of one, and even delivered Jefferson's State of the Union address to Congress on his behalf. That's how much Jefferson disdained what he saw as a flamboyant exercise of a monarchy. But why Meriwether Lewis as his number two? Here's historian Gary Moulton. People had always considered that Lewis was called from his military service by Jefferson to prepare him for the Western Expedition. But just a few years ago, documents were discovered in Lewis's hand that revealed another motive for his calling. It was a list of the officer corps, that is, the members of the military staff who were the chief and principal officers in the military service, and beside each name was listed cryptic letters that revealed their political affiliations. Now remember that Jefferson has come into the presidency as the first one out of the established party of Washington and Hamilton and Adams, the Federalist Party. He's a Democratic Republican. Now these men of the revolutionary era, the Jefferson, Washington, Adams, they knew their history and they knew that over time these new endeavors and political revolutions had oftentimes fallen apart because of coup d'etats. Some general, some soldier, some Napoleon who wanted to push through and come to the top. So Jefferson was using Lewis's knowledge of the political affiliations of the officer's corps to block anyone who might have ambitions to overturn this new democratic republican revolution, the revolution of 1800, the election of Thomas Jefferson. So it gave a whole new complex to Lewis's arrival at the White House. This all sounds pretty Machiavellian on Jefferson's part. But it was actually his predecessor, John Adams, who was closer to being Machiavelli. Adams significantly increased the country's military officer corps and handed out the commissions to his guys, the Federalists. It went so far as to exclude applicants suspected of being Republicans. Even his fellow party member, Alexander Hamilton, thought he took it too far. Stephen Ambrose, author of Undaunted Courage, wrote, It was an age marked by a certain extravagance of language before citing the Federalist's explicitly stated fear, the general ascendancy of the worthless, 
the dishonest, the rapacious, the vile, the merciless, and the ungodly, the Republicans. And we think our time's partisanship is bad. These are the death by duel guys. So Jefferson wasn't so much trying to politicize the military, but to turn back the clock as he looked to scale back its size by one half to what he saw is the proper size for a nation where the citizen was primary, not the government. And money could be saved to, again, putting the citizen first. Ambrose noted that Jefferson did not take a meat axe to the Federalists on Lewis's list. All the Federalist officers rated superior by Lewis retained their commissions. Of those rated acceptable, seven of 18 were retained. Jefferson wanted to bring the country together and he hoped to win over at least some Federalists to his cause, so he had to keep them in the army. And even after Jefferson's alleged purge, Federalist officers outnumbered Republicans by 140 to 38. Fast forward one year. Jefferson did not start thinking again about a Western expedition until 1802, a year into his presidency. He read a book by Alexander McKenzie, a Canadian who worked for the Northwest Fur Company and who had just made a transcontinental expedition in Canada. And it was one of these firebell in the night experiences for Jefferson. Jefferson was away from the White House at his Monticello home in Virginia when he received Mackenzie's book, and Lewis was with him. Stephen Ambrose wrote that they devoured it. To Lewis, what struck hardest was the line, Alexander Mackenzie, from Canada, by land. This raised the matter of national honor. The name painted on that rock on the Pacific coast was a direct, open, irresistible challenge. And the sentences that most struck Jefferson were in which he urged Great Britain to develop a land passage to the Pacific for trade with Asia. Not if Jefferson had anything to do with it. Jefferson and Lewis were now off to the races to claim the West and its potential to open up trade with Asia for America. Jefferson didn't seem to doubt very much that Lewis was his man for the job, despite his depression. Jefferson says very fascinatingly, I thought that by sending him on this journey, one of two things would be true. Either it would put that into, an, into abeyance while he was out there, or it would cure him. Would Jefferson be right? In the positive column, Jefferson wrote this stunning testament to Lewis. It was impossible to find a character who took complete science in botany, natural history, mineralogy, and astronomy, joined the firmness of constitution and character, prudence, habits adapted to the woods, and a familiarity with the Indian manners and character requisite for this undertaking. All the latter qualifications Captain Lewis has. What Jefferson's really saying was that an expert might be better for mapping or for discovering new plant and animal species, a secret secondary objective of Jefferson's, but those types of people couldn't last in the wilderness, and Lewis could. And while he could be taught a sufficient amount of mapping and scientific expertise, it would be ten times harder to teach Lewis's same character and toughness 
to an already formed adult. Here's Clay Jenkinson. When you send the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, you, you land, get a few rocks, and come back. And when you send the Lewis and Clark expedition on a highly dangerous and hazardous journey into the wilderness, what you want are young men with strong backs and a high threshold of pain. And you don't have the luxury at that point of getting the skill sets that you would eventually want to send into the West. So he did the best he could with Lewis. And by Jefferson did the best he could with Lewis, Clay meant it literally that Jefferson trained Lewis. And when we come back more on the most epic road trip ever, Lewis and Clark, this is Our American Stories. And we continue with the final segment with how the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, personally trained an adventurer, Meriwether Lewis. Stephen Ambrose wrote that Lewis took botany lessons from Jefferson, who taught as they walked through the gardens at Monticello, or later in the season along the banks of the Potomac. Between the time Mackenzie's book arrived in December 1802, Jefferson gave Lewis a college undergraduate's introduction to the liberal arts, North American geography, botany, mineralogy, and astronomy. And put aside the willingness to do this, here's Dayton Duncan on another little consideration. I can't think of any other president that would have anywhere close to that kind of intellectual breadth and firepower other than Jefferson. But Jefferson and Lewis weren't the only actors in this story. We're talking about a U.S. government adventure. And so in our republic, we're talking about Congress, too, especially given it involved money. $2,500. Yes, the pittance of $2,500, the equivalent of only $52,000 today. And it sure makes the government we're paying for today look expensive. Here's Herman Viola, the curator emeritus of the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. Theoretically, I mean, these were probably, I don't want to offend anybody, these were probably Republicans at that time, and so, we, and so the Congress didn't want to waste any money. And so, uh, so anyhow, Jefferson had to convince Congress that this was actually an economic adventure that would pay off for the United States, and he needed to have a few dollars to fund a few soldiers to go west. And his, he said, you know, we're doing this so that we can make contact with the native peoples who live out west. We don't know anything about them. We don't know how many warriors they have in these tribes. We'd already had a couple wars with Indians to begin with. The last thing we want to do is go west and find out we're going to deal with people we couldn't cope with. So Congress thought that was a very good idea. Jefferson's foreign counterparts were another matter. Foreign counterparts who still controlled large swaths of the future United States, and thus Lewis would require passports to go through their territory. The British's claims on the Pacific Ocean, the French with the Louisiana that also included much of the Great Plains, and especially problematic were the Spanish, who controlled the Southwest. 
Spanish were always very edgy about American intentions in the West. So Jefferson then tried to present it to the Spanish as a purely intellectual enterprise. And the Spanish saw through it absolutely and rejected it out of hand. Only a week apart from Congress authorizing Lewis's expedition, they authorize an expenditure over 6,000 times larger. And it took some even wider liberties with the Constitution, the Louisiana Purchase. For Jefferson, who had participated in both the Declaration of Independence and in the arguments about the Constitution and was a, quote, small government person, this notion of just expanding, the doubling the size of the United States unilaterally, basically, making the deal from the administrative branch was questionable by the Constitution. For where in the Constitution does it give the president the power to negotiate land purchases, let alone a doubling of the size of the nation? Of course, Jefferson defaults again to the Commerce Clause, and surely the purchase will promote commerce in this territory. But the Constitution doesn't say anything about promoting commerce. It only delegates the power to regulate commerce. And this is just the constitutional objection against the Louisiana Purchase. There were practical ones, too. One of the congressmen says, we are to give money of which we have too little for land of which we already have too much. More voices chimed in. Another Federalist paper called the Louisiana Purchase the wildest chimera of a moonstruck brain. But guess what? Jefferson was right that they were wrong. And Jefferson understood the sweep of American history much better than any of his detractors and did what any rational being would have done had that rational being been as creative and as forward-thinking as Thomas Jefferson. It was perhaps the greatest real estate transaction in the history of mankind, paying three cents per acre at a total cost of only $325 million in today's dollars for almost a quarter of our present United States. The Louisiana Purchase certainly made Meriwether Lewis's expedition easier. His nation now controlled more of the land he would be going through. Without delay, Jefferson shoots Lewis off to Philadelphia, the then intellectual heartbeat of America for further training. The plan is for Lewis to then assemble a corps of men for the expedition and at once head off the Missouri River, where Jefferson believed the Northwest Passage started and before winter set in. And about this time, Lewis realized he needed a co-commander, a shocking conclusion. Stephen Ambrose writes, divided command almost never works and is the bane of all military men, to whom the sanctity of the chain of command is basic, and the idea of two disagreeing commanders in a critical condition is anathema. Lewis must have thought he couldn't have been successful without a co-commander who was more grounded than he was. And he wrote this letter to the man he had in mind, William Clark. If there's anything in this enterprise which would induce you to participate with me in its fatigues, its dangers, and its honors, believe me, there's no man on earth with whom I would feel equal pleasure in sharing them as with yourself. With sincere and affectionate regard, your friend and humble servant, Meriwether Lewis. And on July 29th, 1803, Lewis receives Clark's response. 
and imagine his apprehension opening it up. Dear Lewis, this is an undertaking freighted with many difficulties, but my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. Your obedient servant, William Clark. Lewis and Clark is born. So why did Clark accept the invitation? Here's historian William Foley. He was looking for a job. (laughs) Before the invitation, he had resigned from the army to take care of his older, more famous brother, George Rogers Clark, sorting out his messy affairs of debts, lawsuits, drinking, and depression for over five years. Now he needed to to move on, and and so I think it came along at a point when he was needing something to do. Lewis began gathering their supplies. One supplier was six weeks late on delivering a boat because he was drunk, and there weren't any competitors within 200 miles who could make it. And they began gathering and training their team of 40, officially known as the Corps of Discovery. And to Jefferson's dismay, both matters took longer than expected, and they'd have to wait until the spring to depart. When you think about this story, it's a little bit like kind of a Hollywood movie, the Dirty Dozen sort of movie, where, or the uh, Magnificent Seven, where you, you have a mission and you gather a bunch of ne'er-do-wells together, and you have to use ne'er-do-wells because they're all that you've got. They all have problems and, and there are surface issues, but it turns out that underneath they're great guys and they wind up being outstanding when the real crisis comes. Many of them might have been drunks, but they were their drunks. And Lewis was one too. And this largely was the culture of the time. One day while they were making their way to their departure point in St. Louis, two of them got so drunk that they had to be thrown into the boat. Other times they had to be literally whipped into shape. And on April 8, 1804, a little over a month before their departure, Corps member Sergeant John Ordway wrote this to his parents. Honored parents, for fear of accidents, I wish to inform you that I left $200 in cash. If I should not live, my heirs can get it. And on this day in history in 1804, they were off, westward on the Missouri River, and with Jefferson's instructions to write down everything. We sort of look back on history and think, well, obviously that was going to happen, and that was going to happen, and that was going to happen. You just need to remember the names and the dates, and that's that's what history is. But the Lewis and Clark journals and the story awakened in me is this realization that, you know, I was working in the governor's office, and every day we would be making decisions that we hoped would turn out a certain way, but might or might not. And therefore, that's that really is what history is. It's people getting up in the morning, trying to do things to that might affect the, the future, and hoping that it would, but with no guarantee of it. That's what history is. It's, you know, people just like me and you or anyone, that they're human beings and the uncertainty of, of tomorrow. And it's very pertinent with Lewis and Clark because 
they were, you know, they had no idea what was around the next bend of that river. And great job on that, Alex. What a story. And we'll follow this trip, this most epic road trip ever, down the road. Actually, there were no roads. Down the river. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture and listen to all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Here on Our American Stories, Lewis and Clark's story. Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Jesse's best regular segment, and he's got a whole bunch of them, but this this day in music history is our favorite. This day in music history, 1948, Nat King Cole goes number one in the States with Nature Boy. The song was composed by a free-spirited songwriter named Eden Abez who lived in a Los Angeles park. Rival record companies released cover versions of Nature Boy by other artists like Frank Sinatra and Sarah Vaughan, which were also successful. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far. Overland and sea. It ultimately became a pop and jazz standard with many artists interpreting the song, including Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga, who recorded it for their jazz collaborative album, Cheek to Cheek, in 2014. And in 1965, this day in music history, Bob Dylan's single, Subterranean Homesick Blues, peaked at number 39 in the U.S. charts, giving Dylan his first U.S. Top 40 hit. John is in a basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement, thinking about the government. John Lennon of the Beatles reported to find the song so captivating that he didn't know how he would be able to write a song that could compete with it. In addition to its influence on music, this song was used in one of the first modern promotional film clips the precursor of what would later be known as a music video. And in 1971, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young scored their second number one U.S. album with Four Way Street. The live album featured recordings from shows at the Fillmore East in New York and the Forum in Los Angeles. Southern man better keep your head And in 1976, the Rolling Stones went number one on the U.S. album chart with Black and Blue, the group's sixth U.S. number one album. It was the band's first studio album released with Ronnie Wood as the replacement for McTaylor. Though recorded at a transitional moment for the band, the release received mixed reviews. And in 
1982, the band Asia went number one on the U.S. album chart with their self-titled album. I never meant to be so bad to you. One thing I said that I would never do. It spent a total of nine weeks at number one and became the best-selling album in the U.S. in 1982. Asia's total worldwide sales are estimated at over 10 million copies. Also in 1982, this day in music history, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney started a seven-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Ebony and Ivory. Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect harmony. While the song gave McCartney his 24th U.S. number one hit as a songwriter, it was later named the worst song of all time by Blender Magazine, and in 2007 was named the worst duet in history by BBC Music listeners. And in 1986, this day in music history, Run DMC released their Raising Hell album, which featured the groundbreaking rap reworking of Aerosmith's Walk This Way. With Steven Tyler and Joe Perry guesting on vocals and guitars, it's often credited as helping break hip-hop music into mainstream pop music, as it was the first hip-hop song to hit the top five on the Billboard Hot 100. We heard, this is what me and Run called it, Hillbilly Gibberish. This is how it sounded to us. Crazy. And in 1993, Janet Jackson started an eight-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with That's the Way Love Goes, her sixth number one and a number two hit in the U.K. The song became Jackson's biggest hit to date in the United States and was one of the longest reigning hits of the year, topping the Billboard Hot 100 for eight weeks, the longest-running number one single of any other member of the Jackson family on the Hot 100. And in 2003, this day in music history, country singer June Carter Cash, the wife of Johnny Cash, died in Nashville, Tennessee of complications following a heart valve replacement at age 73. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring She was a member of the Carter family and had hits with Johnny Cash, including the Grammy Award-winning songs Jackson, Ring of Fire, and If I Were a Carpenter. While June Carter Cash may be best known for singing and songwriting, she was also an author, dancer, actress, comedian, philanthropist, and humanitarian. She studied with Lee Strasberg and Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York. She landed an acting role in Robert Duvall's 1998 movie The Apostle, as well as Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and Gunsmoke. Her first notable studio performance with Johnny Cash occurred in 1964 when she duetted with Cash on It Ain't Me, Babe, a Bob Dylan composition that was released as a single on Cash's album Orange Blossom Special. Go away from my window Leave at your own chosen speed I'm not the one you want, babe I'm not the one you need You say you're looking for someone Who's never weak but always strong protect you and defend you whether you are right or wrong someone 
At June Carter Cash's funeral, her stepdaughter, Roseanne Cash, stated, quote, If being a wife were a corporation, June would have been a CEO. It was her most treasured role. Johnny Cash died four months after June's death, and her daughter, Rosie Nix Adams, a month after that. Johnny and June, along with Rosie, are buried in Hendersonville Memory Gardens near their home in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And that's This Day in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. For someone who'll promise never to part Someone to close his eyes for you Someone to close his heart Someone to die for you and This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, Heidi. I need a cup of coffee right now. I I need two. And I I drink soda, so (laughs) I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola, but you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll have to. I know it's gross, but let's talk about how did, why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the de- devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for, forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the, you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch. And in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for 15, 20 years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the allowed question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these? And is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. 
So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. It's your mug's fine. Your so mug's, so you what about that? Fine. You know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the uh, the office coffee mug, talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get him nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug. Seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about, about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some, if you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, – the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so, There's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the of the mug, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. Doesn't harbor germs. Doesn't harbor infectious disease. Hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you you know you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of gross. It is kind of. But here's where it gets grosser. Doctor Stark. I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning and then he leaves it in the car all day and then the next morning he's like, meh. And I'll just drink his coffee from the car. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff. The lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. (laughs) I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out. And then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't 
it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's done it again and there's all kinds of things growing in the car. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like I have to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food in the fridge is good for a week. No, I don't think Coffee so Coffee from yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs, and how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with, like, a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says, like, a lot of people said well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those, on, like, mulligan ones and um, culligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that clean, the, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there um what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because as dr stark said um normal people's normal germs really won't make you sick he said if they did then we would have to ban kissing oh that's a that's a fair (laughs) point though there are some people i don't know if i want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles (laughs) of diseases too that's true too (laughs) oh well heidi what are you doing anything special for your christmas season I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, <laughs> if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, you'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most. Spumoni Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything, music, sports, love, faith, not politics. And one of our favorite subjects is work. We don't talk enough about it in this country, and it's what we do with so much of our lives. And we cover work from every angle, how work builds character, forms unlikely friendships, and often changes lives. But as we're about to learn from the Wall Street Journal reporter Kate Davidson, finding the right folks to join a team isn't always so easy. Kate generally covers the Federal Reserve and the U.S. economy from the Journal's D.C. Bureau, and she wrote a great piece entitled Employers Find Soft Skills Like Critical Thinking in Short Supply. Kate, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And Kate, before we dig into the topic, you normally cover the big picture economy stuff, the macro stuff that's happening at the Federal Reserve. And by the way, very important stuff for anybody who's got a mortgage, anybody who's looking at a car payment, anybody who's doing anything with money. Uh, What got you interested in this issue of soft skills? Well, um, you know, if you think about the Federal Reserve, um, they have two really important mandates that Congress gave to them. And one is to make sure that um, prices are stable. So that's sort of keeping an eye on inflation. But the other mandate that's equally important is um, is maintaining or, or sort of shooting for maximum pl- employment. And that is making sure that, you know, the most number of workers as is feasible or possible uh, have jobs. And so the labor market is a really important part of my beat and what I pay attention to. And um, so over in recent years, as we've seen the labor market start to tighten. That is, you know, as we've gotten further away from the recession, employers are looking to hire more workers. We had heard from, um, you know, different kind of studies that we'd seen and just from talking to business owners that we regularly talk to as part of our job, um, we've heard heard business owners saying that it's gotten really hard to find workers. And, um, you know, we probably all heard a lot about the, um, the skills shortage and problems finding like welders and people with certain certifications um, for these high-tech jobs. Well, one thing that business owners um, and others were saying was equally difficult is finding workers who just have kind of these basic skills that we have come to, a lot of people refer to as soft skills. Now, I I asked some people about this, economists and other academics, and they said, well, what do you mean by that? And it's kind of difficult to define, but how a business owner would define it it is basically like kind of those skills that make a standout employee, Um, people who come to work and and want to excel. They want to learn. They really have ambition. um, They have energy. They're responsible. They're professional. um, And they're sort of... um, they're sort of uh, not very technical skills, but really, really important to, to most, pretty much any kind of job. And some of the soft skills you highlight, in addition to the ones you listed there, uh, Kate, are communication skills, organization skills. I think this is a big one, and talk about this, because it's happening more and more in our lives, uh, the capacity for teamwork. Uh, talk right. about that one. Sure, yeah. So that one is really important because, um, well, the, all of this is important because it, it kind of reflects a, an underlying shift in the economy, sort of away from jobs where you would go, say, to a factory. You know, manufacturing used to make up a much bigger share of the jobs in our country. And you might go and you might do the same job, the same task over and over all day long. And now jobs have shifted away from that. Um, more jobs are in the service sector. And even jobs in manufacturing are, are wider. We're being asked to do to take on a greater range of tasks and, and also to work with other people. That's becoming much more common in different jobs. So, so being able to work as a team and to work with your colleagues uh, is just paramount. You have to be able basically to just get along with people. Yeah, you quoted Keith Albatron, who's the chief executive of Allen Investments, and that's an 84-year-old wealth management company in Lakeland, Florida. And you wrote this, in the increasingly complex financial services world, advisors often collaborate with accountants, attorneys, and other planning professionals. 
Mr. Albertman said. That means the firm's associates must be able to work in teams. Quote, you can't just be the general of your own army. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is there's also an increasing, because of Facebook, because of selfies, um, I, I sense, and I don't know if this is true, but when I go to hire, I sense a, lot, a little bit more narcissism in the average candidate today than I sensed 20 years ago or 10 years ago. There's more eyes, what are my benefits, what do I get, and not enough we's and ours. Talk about that. Is that something you've heard? Uh, is it just me? Uh, or something in between. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I get I get the question a lot, maybe worded a little bit differently, but just, you know, is this millennials? Is it kind of all their fault? Is that who we're talking about here? And I mean, it, certainly there were some, some uh, employers who said, yes, it is, it, it's a lot of younger people and they're, for example, they just they want to communicate by email or over text and they're not great face-to-face. But I definitely talked to plenty of other employers who said, no, this is something we see pretty much across the spectrum um, and employee, employees with different levels of experience, different backgrounds, different, of different ages. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of different things that, um, that are going into it. But, um, but yeah, certainly there are, I think that there are unique um, challenges perhaps with uh, students who are coming right out of school. Um, and a, a lot of that sometimes just relates to professionalism, kind of not, not exactly knowing how to behave in, in the workplace. And so that might be like, right, being on Facebook all day or kind of not knowing what, that it, whether, when it's appropriate to, to call someone up, um, you know, versus texting them or, or how to write an email in a professional way. And so right. those are some, some challenges, I think, that, um, that apply specifically to younger people. I think that's true. And also the internship and work are so important. And, and real internships, substantive ones. And I think that uh, the more I, I particularly when I'm hiring young people, love to hire young people who had jobs in college or who worked jobs and jobs that had face to face contact, particularly because this is real life. And I think that that can go a long way in, in getting those soft skills going. Talk about work and young people. And, and, and I'm not just here to focus on the millennials, but what was what was the, uh, the, the level of interest by folks in thinking about how to think about that? Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, it's absolutely huge. I talked to one, one firm um, that does uh, forensic, they're sort of a, an internet forensic web type company. And so they do forensics for a lot of uh, like corporate espionage type cases. And they have um, employees that have to go and testify in court, for example. And so you, ha- and you have to be able to like, say, explain these, this very complex technical concept to clients. And so um, there's a range of soft skills that are really important. And anyway, this company, the, the uh, CEO said that they've developed uh, basically a pipeline, that they have a very strong apprenticeship and internship program. And, and just as you said, they, they said that's how they, essentially it allows them to sc- to kind of pre-screen these candidates, but they bring them in, they have them work for a semester on a major project, they have them present that project to, um, you know, to the board of directors there or the, or the management there, and they go through a number of steps, and, and I mean, it, I, I don't know that it works out with, with these candidates every single time, I don't know that they keep every single one of them, but it gives them the chance to see how does this person do in, in an office setting, how do they do under pressure, how are they in presenting, and so that's what a lot of companies, um, you know, try to do is, built up that pipeline, so to speak. Um, others sort of rely on, um, you know, training centers at, say, community colleges. That's another avenue for employers to go to. Um, but as you said, that, that work experience, I think, is, uh, is really critical. And there are a number of programs across the country that aim to help students with that. Um, and I even went to a couple of job training centers where um, older workers who were hoping to switch careers, um, uh, you know, or, or perhaps they 
needed some new additional certification or they've been out of work for a long time, there are different places that, that help those workers as well because with this sort of shifting economy, um, some of these skills, as I said, and a, a worker who maybe worked had a job 10 years ago, but then they lost their job, they've been out of work for a while, They even, even in, in 10 years' time, um, there are more soft skills that they just need to pick up and they need help with. So there's a lot of resources out there um, uh, devoted to this, for sure. Well, good. And when we come back, we're going to dig into this idea of atrophying soft skills, building up those skills, a conversation about soft skills and employment and work and jobs with Kate Davidson and the author of a Wall Street Journal piece entitled Employers Find Soft Skills Like Critical Thinking in Short Supply. Kate's story, the worker's story, the workplace's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. And this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Kate Davidson, author of the Wall Street Journal piece, Employers Find Soft Skills Like Critical Thinking in Short Supply. Let's get down to some numbers. You cite a LinkedIn survey of 291 hiring managers that found 58% of candidates lacking the soft skills. Uh, and talk about what that means to the company's productivity and to the company's bottom line, Kate. Yeah, well, I, I think um, that those those companies uh, said that it, it certainly was hurting their um, their productivity. I don't have this the specific um, figure in front of me from that LinkedIn survey, but we work directly with LinkedIn, and they took a look at uh, their profiles. Um, you know, they, and they surveyed, look at, took a look at a number of profiles to sort of scan for uh, the soft skills that people were listing, and essentially whether if those people applied for jobs, were they successful? In other words, trying to kind of gauge how much of an impact, how important those types of skills were to these people finding new jobs. But as part of that work, um, they also surveyed employers, as you said, and and a lot of them said, uh, you know, this is this is something that's critically important to us. And and yes, we are having a problem finding people because um, one of the questions we had was, is this just is is there a shrinking supply here? Are there just fewer people with these kinds of skills, or has the demand really gone up? And and as I um, explained a little bit earlier, I think that a big part of it is demand driven. That we're just in um, in an era where where employers need people with wider soft skills. So if you have them, um, you're a really really attractive candidate. Um, but if the company is having trouble finding people with those skills, it can certainly um, it can hurt them. As you said, it can hurt really hurt productivity and um, and and ultimately affect the bottom line. You bet. In the Wall Street Journal survey of nearly 900 executives, again, this is from your piece. Employers find soft skills like critical thinking and short supply. This was in the Wall Street Journal. We're talking to Kate Davidson, the author. 900 executives surveyed by the journal found 92% said soft skills were equally important or more important 
than technical skills. I was flabbergasted by that. That really blew me away. But 89% said they have a very or somewhat difficult time finding people with the requisite attributes, which we just mm-hmm. talked about. But this thing, I mean, we, we, we've been reading forever about the welder, the mismatch in coding writers. Right. <laughs> but let's face it, not, you know, you take all the welders out of the economy and all the code writers, and you've got the rest of the economy. Yeah, yeah. And I talked to, um, you know, I talked to the director of a, a skills training center in West Philadelphia. And um, in Philly, you know, they have a very big um, medical uh, sector. And so they work with a lot of hospitals and, and placing, um, placing their students in, um, in, in those in those types of jobs. And this, um, this director said, you know, we, we hear this a lot from the companies we work with as well. I just, I can't find these people. I can't find these people. They don't have the skills. And he said, oftentimes when you press them a little bit more, like, well, what do you mean? What is it that they're not meeting? You actually find out that it's the soft skills that they're really looking for, that they're having a hard time finding. And as the survey, as our survey suggested, um, you know, it can be uh, somewhat hard or really hard for a lot of um, employers. And part of that is because these skills don't show up on a resume. Um, obviously, you can put them on your LinkedIn. You could put, I mean, you could put them on your resume, but there's really no way of the employer knowing whether you have them or not. And it's certainly difficult to kind of figure that out in a you know 45-minute interview. No, so no doubt. And you have other other soft skills that we didn't get to. Social savvy. My goodness, how do you? You can say you have social savvy, but you don't know until you hire the person. Critical thinking, creativity, adaptability. Um, these are human characteristics that exhibit themselves after weeks and months and years on the workplace. Exactly. I don't know how you find that out in an interview. Have people come up with, or are they working on in some way, Kate, some way of having quizzes or tests that can identify some of these things for employers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that we sort of found it was it tended to be larger employers who can afford these kinds of things because they are expensive. They'll give a personality tests and they'll do personality screening. Um, the wealth management firm um, that you brought up in the earlier uh, segment, uh, earlier part of our conversation, they actually worked with an industrial psychologist who worked just with them, talked to to the company about what are the attributes you're looking for. I will design a test for you so that you can give them to your can- job candidates and then you'll. Know know, sort of you can get a better sense of whether they line up with what you're looking for. Um, but it, it ranged from that sort of thing to the incredibly simple. I got this great um, tweet. Someone tweeted at me after the story ran. I just loved this. And a guy said, you know, whenever I have someone in for an interview, I, I crumple up a piece of paper, um, you know, a piece of trash, and I leave it outside my door near the trash can. And I watch to see which candidates walk by and leave it there and which ones pick it up and throw it in the trash. Yep. <laughs> and, and I thought that was so funny. Just, um, he said, you know, it really is just gives you some insight into people's character. Um, and character is just, it's impossible to measure. It's really, really difficult for sure. Another company I mentioned in the story, uh, this woman who, she just she owns a chain of, of pet stores. This is not like high finance, but she takes um, uh, job candidates, if they're managers, higher level, uh, she'll take them out to dinner with their spouse or their family, and she'll take them with the, the other managers in the company, and they'll all go out to eat. And she said, so that we can get a, just get a little window into how they are around their family. It really tells us a lot. So people are certainly getting much more creative with how they're approaching this. Yeah, I like Cindy Harold, uh, who you quoted, who runs the Old Europe restaurant in D.C., put up a sign outside seeking workers with common sense, you wrote. And she said to you, quote, I can teach somebody how to slice and dice onions. I can teach somebody how to cook a soup. But it's hard to teach someone normal manners or what you consider a work ethic. Um, yeah. Talk about her. 
Oh, yeah. Well, she was great. Um, and this is, I have to admit, this is a restaurant that's actually um, in Washington. I've been there to eat. I've walked by, and I happened to be walking by and saw that sign, and that's what prompted me to call her. And uh, and she was telling me about, um, you know, in the restaurant business in particular, she said, you won't believe how many job candidates we have who find out, wait, you know, I have to work on Friday and Saturday nights, or I have to work on holidays. And she said, you know, this is the restaurant industry. Like, I, I just don't know what these people are thinking. And she seemed so shocked by it. Um, and uh, she said, just just having to explain to people, like, look, you know, if you're, you're working in the kitchen, you come in the back door, don't come in the front door and walk through the restaurant. Um, or if someone is speaking to you and you can't hear them say, um, pardon me or excuse me, not what? Um, she said they're small things, but it really adds up to and it kind of affects the whole atmosphere of her business. Um, and she is it's a family run business. She runs it with her husband and her husband's father had opened the restaurant decades ago. But she said, you know, my father in law says that it's never been so difficult to find people like this. It's really it's really tough right now in particular. Well, when we look at a few things and obviously the automation and the outsourcing of routine tasks, I think you're, you're right to that point you made earlier that maybe we need more soft skills than we ever needed for jobs because we've outsourced a lot of this stuff to automation that doesn't. But exactly. I, think, I think there might be two things going on at once, that and the fact that maybe because there's more families that don't sit around a dinner table, more, more, more common sense and character not being taught, which used to just be from our fairy tales to our fables to, to going to church to giving. Um, a lot of our social capital has really frayed, Kate, and this may be the manifestation of that. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest challenge, I think, to writing this story, it actually took uh, it took a long time. And the biggest challenge was that there's not a lot of data out there. This is just an area that's not very well understood. And economists are trying to kind of figure it out. Um, and, and I talked to one economist at the University of California who has looked at basically what happens to wages over time of people who have stronger soft skills. And, um, you know, without getting too into the weeds, you know, she found that, that you can make more, essentially you earn more money if you have really strong soft skills and hard skills. But even when I asked her kind of what's happening here, what's behind this? And she, she said almost just what you did. She said, well, maybe we're just not sitting around the dinner table that much anymore. You know, kids are uh, playing more video games. And she, she was sort of at a loss, too. So it's an area that's ripe for, for research. Kate, I think it's desperate for research because I, I don't know a family. And if you have kids, you've got to know this yourself. I drive my 12-year-old to school. And some days I go, my goodness, we barely talked around the dinner table yesterday. I, I said three words to her in the morning. And, and then during an hour where she, I was watching TV, she was doing something. So we weren't even watching TV together. And I really try my best to have family time. And, and, and I've got the time and the resources to do that. And I feel the time slipping away. And the things that came so easily to my family, it, it, no one's competing for the time today, then like they are now. So yeah. many things are coming at us. And by the way, they're influencing our kids. They're influencing our young kids. I mean, that book by D Professor Duckworth at the University yeah. of Pennsylvania on grit. Yes. Um, that was something we all just had. You know, the dads would say, go paint the house, and families would do stuff together, or they'd till the fields together. And grit was just sort of endemic in the human, human DNA of the normal American who had to pitch in around the house, around the farm. I mean, we were a country that had a lot of grit, and I think a lot of common sense. And I think this may be uh, something that happens with both affluence Kate, and maybe the, again, when I got to earlier, that, that social capital sort of breaking down because of the dissolution of the American family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and, and possibly, um, you know, just that there used to be a lot more opportunity 
if you didn't necessarily have those skills, I don't know, maybe I'm bringing it, bringing it back to my point earlier or looking at the other side of the coin too, just that there were, there were many more jobs where if you, right, if you didn't have the best soft skills, um, you could certainly continue to get by. And I think that that's also what's, what's uh, kind of difficult here is that these are, you really have to have this. It's not... Um, it's life know, or death now. It's life or death. It's much more important, sure. Yeah, and, and you're right. Automation has sort of... For those people that didn't have soft skills, there was a path, there was a path for them. Yeah. And, and that's becoming increasingly difficult. Kate, you got to write the book. Other people have talked about it. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to seeing soft skills, and I get 10%. I, I deserve okay. at least a cut of the book, Kate. I'll try. I'll try. It's busy here in Washington right now. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe <laughs> this so is a good much. way to escape what's going on in Washington. We're talking to Kate <laughs> Davidson, author of the Wall Street Journal piece, Employers Find Soft Skills Like Critical Thinking in Short Supply. Go to Google, Google it. And Kate, thanks so much for all you do at the Journal on the bigger picture of reporting about our economy and the Federal Reserve. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for having me. You bet. This is Our American Stories, and you can catch all that we do on ouramericannetwork.org.